Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. Continuing our treatment of the life of Moses, we now take up the first 10 verses of the chapter, so I won't reread them. Our text will be the first 10 verses of chapter 2. We hear God's word. And there went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein. And she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. And his sister stood far off to wit what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river. And her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, And he became her son. And she called his name Moses. And she said, Because I drew him out of the water. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens. And he spied an Egyptian smiting an Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way. And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And he said to him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me, as thou killedst the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to rule their father, he said, How is it that ye are come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and also drew water enough for us and watered the flock. And he said unto his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that ye have left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses Zipporah his daughter. And she bare him a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died. And the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried. 
And their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, Israel finds herself in a very difficult and dark situation. A situation where oppression abounded. And this oppression was not merely due to Pharaoh and his demands. We noted that that was a significant aspect of it. But also due to the sinfulness and the barrenness spiritually that characterized the people of Israel. They were weak. And that weakness becomes evident, especially in the subsequent chapters. We can understand that spiritual barrenness. They had no written scriptures at this time. Nothing that they could sit down and read or teach to each other. They had no central place of worship where they could gather to encourage each other. They didn't have an established priesthood. Idolatry, apostasy abounded. And they were rampant in Israel as Israel lived in Egypt. There's a reference years later to the idols of Egypt. And it seems as though those idols and that idolatry had taken hold of the people. And they were bound to it. That idolatry created all kinds of problems with Moses. It created problems with Aaron. It created later problems as Joshua led the people into the land of Canaan. But we understand again how easy it was for them to stray away from God. We have these blessings. We have the Spirit working in our hearts. We have the written Word. We have worship, the preaching of the Word. And yet, how easy it is for us also to walk in disobedience. The promise of God that He made to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, is being realized in this history. And we note that. That promise was that God would raise up the seed of the woman. That God would make of Abraham a great nation and God would bless all the nations of the earth in Abraham. That God would bring Abraham into a promised land that would be glorious. And God is realizing that promise. His faithfulness is written on every chapter of the scriptures, including this chapter here in Exodus. And so we look at here God's care for his church and God's care for his children in preserving in Israel this man who was to be her deliverer, the baby Moses. Noting the promise, noting the providence of God, and noting God's faithfulness. We read in verse 2 that the woman conceived and bare a son, and when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. There's a saying that every mother believes her child is goodly or beautiful. But we have something more going on here in this history. This wasn't just the biased perspective of Jochebed. Strikingly, we read God's commentary on this in Acts 7, verse 20, and then again in Hebrews 11, verse 23. In Acts 7, we have the striking incident where Stephen is being accused before the Sanhedrin, and he launches into a history of the whole of God's church and God's promises And we read in chapter 7, verse 20, In which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. 
And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And then we're familiar also with the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 11, where we have reference made as well to the wonder of the faith that God worked in Amram and Jochebed as well as in Moses. Hebrews 11, verses 23 and, 20, 23 and following. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. God gives us these New Testament commentaries here on Exodus chapter 2. And especially striking is that of Stephen in chapter 7 of Acts, where Stephen now doesn't make it a matter of Jochebed's determination, but rather that of God's, in which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair. So that we take this as more than just a mother's love for her, her son. This was the assessment of God. Now, the significance of that ought to be evident from the passage. The point is that Jochebed sees in her son that he's a goodly child, and so she doesn't kill him. Now, there are those that would say it's just a reference to his outward appearance, that she saw that he had a pleasant look, a good complexion, and therefore, because he was looking so good, because he was so healthy, therefore, she didn't kill him. In other words, the only reason she was unwilling to kill him was because he looked nice. That's not the idea. Believers don't kill their babies. Believers don't murder the ones that have defects or don't look nice. Believers choose life for their children. Even children that might have outward defects, might have issues, may not be as beautiful as others. Believers receive their children as a gift from God. And the reference then here cannot be understood as outward. The Hebrew word here means good. They saw that he was good. And the reference there goes back to creation. When God created all things, and what was God's assessment? It was good. This was a gift from God. As Psalm 127 talks about children. Children being a gift, a reward from the Lord. Now Hebrews 11 expresses the motivation of Amram and Jochebed. Faith. And that again assists us here. Faith is what enabled them to know and to believe that there was something unique in this child. They saw in him the wonder of a deliverer. Now we don't know how much God gave them to understand, how much God revealed to them, but Moses' parents were given by God to see something in him by faith. God gives his children the gift of faith. And by that faith, they're able to see things that the world would not be able to see. 
God directs his children to the wonder of the Messiah, the wonder of the mediator, the promises that Christ is coming and that Christ is the deliverer. And God gave the faith of Amram and Jochebed in order that they might see in Moses that deliverance. Now again, to what degree? We can't understand. We can't fully fathom how or to what degree God worked this wonder. But it wasn't about mere appearances. God gave them to know the wonder of his promise and to believe that there was something through this child that would be accomplished by God for the good of Israel. Speaking similarly, we read in Psalm 145 of the king who is fairer. Now we know the reference there is to Jesus. Jesus was the king who is fairer. We also know from Isaiah 53 that that had nothing to do with Jesus' outward appearance. Jesus was comely. He didn't have an outward appearance that would have been attractive according to the referred passages in Isaiah 53 and even in Jesus' ministry. He testified of that. But the reference has to do with the fact that God marked him out. God deemed him as the one who was the king who would be good and would accomplish the purposes that God ordained. The people of God now were looking for the promise. Having been in bondage for this long, they were looking to God for deliverance, looking to God for the strength and the grace that he would reveal in his faithfulness. And God in his faithfulness demonstrated that promise. So when Moses here is noted as one who is fair, one who is suitable to God, the reference we need to see is not just to Moses. The reference here is looking beyond Moses to the one who Moses represented, to Jesus and to the wonder of his coming, as he would be the one who would be the mediator to deliver the people of God out of the bondage of Egypt. God ordaining Moses as that typical mediator, as the one appointed by God, but as the one who would point to the Christ, the only one possible who could deliver his people from that bondage. Jesus would be the one who rescues his people from the Egypt of sin. And God sent Moses now as the one who would be that typical deliverer. Moses would be used by God to gather and to call his son out of Egypt. And he would do so as a type of Jesus Christ, who later would be called out of Egypt after Joseph and Mary had taken him there. Now God ordains then, according to his perfect counsel and according to his perfect plan, the salvation of his children and of his church. And we see that faithfulness of God throughout this history as God raises up Moses as an outstanding type of Christ in the Old Testament. The reference then, not merely to the fact that Amram and Jochebed saw this Moses as something better to look on than perhaps Miriam and Aaron had been, no. But God revealing his wonder by which he preserves to himself a church. And he preserves that church through deliverers. And even though the history of the church is marked by unfaithfulness, the church again and again demonstrating her lack of faithfulness to God, Again and again, history demonstrates the faithfulness of Jehovah God. And Jehovah here raised up this child who was good, who was goodly, who was fair, 
and worked the faith in Amram and Jochebed so that they saw in him the deliverer through whom God would bring about a wonder. Now God's promises are sure. God's promises are from everlasting to everlasting. To Jacob, God had said that he would bring Israel into the land of bondage for 400 years. Now God reveals his faithfulness to begin that work of deliverance. Over against the kingdom of Satan, Jehovah God demonstrates, I am faithful. I will preserve to myself a people. The situation in Egypt was bleak, as we've noted in the past passages here that we looked at in chapter 1. The saints who were faithful to God would have been inclined to despair because of the oppression and because of the hardship. But God is present in the midst of that distress. And God is present according to his promises. He will bring about a deliverance. And he will do so through the deliverer, Moses, who will point to the Messiah. We have the beginning then of that work of God evident here. Moses means the drawn-out one. Later on, the psalmist in Psalm 18, a versification of which we sang, would write of God's deliverance and the ways in which God drew him out of the waters. The psalmist talking about all of this as his experience in Psalm 18. About God delivering him from the strong enemy, We read in beginning in verse 15, Then the channels of waters were seen, and the foundations of the world were discovered at thy rebuke. O Lord, at the blast of the breath of thy nostrils, he sent from above, and he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from them which hated me, for they were too strong for me. This psalm, note in verse, this psalm is is titled, A Psalm of David, the Servant of the Lord, who spoke unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. God inspiring David to write this psalm, speaking of the waters and the waters overwhelming him as a psalm that was messianic and would point to Christ and the waves and the billows of wrath overcoming him and God bringing about his his deliverance. But verse 16 says, He drew me out of many waters. And that's to be understood literally as the name that God gave to Moses. Moses' name meant the drawn out one. The Nile River during this time signified death for the boys in Israel. Now we don't know how many were killed, but we know the command of Pharaoh had gone out and the Nile would mean death. And the boys were to be thrown into the Nile River to die. Moses' parents did not do so. They hid him. They hid him for three months until they could no longer hide him. When they put Moses in the Nile, they were not throwing him to the crocodiles. They placed him in the river in an ark to live. And again, Psalm 16, he sent me from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from them which hated me. Pharaoh hated Israel, and Pharaoh here was rising up against them. But the picture is of Jehovah God fulfilling his promise by giving a mediator to his people. 
Jesus was the one, again, who's led to the waters, who's led through the waters and the billows of the wrath of God to be destroyed by wicked men who took him and crucified him. He gave himself over to death while Moses is delivered. Now, strikingly, Amram and Jacob had placed him in an ark. The same word that's used for ark here is the word that's used with regard to Noah, building an ark. It's only used in those two instances. What was Noah's ark all about? Even you children know. It was about the salvation of God's church. And God saved his church by water. Placing them in that ark and keeping them safe and using the water then to bring about the destruction of the world that then was. Here we have a picture of Moses drawn out of the waters in the midst of death in an ark. His name again, drawn out. The world is saying, die. Pharaoh is saying, die. And God is saying, live. And Jehovah God draws him out so that he can be the deliverer for his people. Moses will be the one who will bring his people out of bondage into the liberties, the freedom that God has. Now this understanding of the promise by faith moves Amram and Jochebed then to do what they did. We believe that their placing him in the water was an act of faith. Some commentators say the faith just refers to them hiding him. So by faith they hid him, but then finally they became desperate. And now it was no longer faith that motivated them to put him in the water. And so they say, how is this an act of faith? To expose a baby to the crocodiles of the Nile? And even if you would take the position, they argue, that they hoped that by doing so, the baby would come into contact with Egyptians, and perhaps even knowing that it could be Pharaoh's daughter, why in the world would they do that? And how can you say that that would be an act of faith? If they knew about Egyptians coming, what were those Egyptians likely to do to the baby? They would likely throw the baby into the water. That was their responsibility. So that how could it be good for him to be found out by Egyptians? And then, even more, the absolute last person you'd ever want this baby to be found by would be someone of the household or family of Pharaoh. For sure that would be devastation. And so they say, they argue, it was one thing to hide the baby. That was an act of faith. But to put him in the Nile, that was an act of desperation. They put him in the water as the wicked ruler had decreed, but they were not doing that by faith. We object to that. We believe that this was an act of faith. They're hiding him, and then also they're placing him in the little ark in the Nile. It was an act of faith because God had given them to know by a wonder of his faithfulness that in this apostate nation, in this dark time, God's hand was evident. And God would preserve and God would keep to himself a remnant not only, but he would raise up a deliverer. And so they believed beyond all expectation, beyond all hope. And isn't that what faith is, according to Hebrews 11? Faith is that which lays hold on the unseen. That's the wonder here. They laid hold on God's promise. They laid hold on God's word and the wonder that God could use this child for his glory. How? They couldn't understand. Now again, God may have instructed, God may have directed them to a certain point. We don't know. 
But faith moved them to believe that God is faithful to his promise and that Jehovah God would raise up a deliverer through whom he would bring Israel out of bondage and that God might even be pleased to use this one, their son, to accomplish that wonder. And so we understand then her for three months trying to keep them as quiet as they could, trying to hide them in the house. But eventually, that not being possible, as during the day, especially, he's making too much noise. So perhaps setting him in the water, in the bulrushes during the day, bringing him back at night, trying to do something there to try to work a means by which they could keep him from being found out by the Egyptians. Miriam keeping watch and trusting by faith their son to the care of the Lord knowing full well the dangers of the river. How long this plan would work, they wouldn't know. We don't know how long they were doing this, whether it was immediate that he was found out or whether it was after some time. But Stephen says in Acts 7, verse 21, and when he was cast out. Now that's an expression that we need to try to understand. What does it mean that he was cast out? The book of Acts uses that same terminology in three other places, and that helps us get an idea of what that word is referring to. The word means found or explained or made clear. When Moses then was set out, that is, when Moses was found, was explained, was made clear. Now, how do we, how do we grasp that? Peter uses the term when he's talking to the Gentiles, and he's explaining to the Jews and Gentiles that the Gentiles are going to be included in God's covenant. And so we read that he speaks of the wonder and he speaks of the work of God by which the Gentiles would be found out. And he explains that. He tries to make that clear for them. The word is used again with regard to Priscilla and Aquila. You remember that history where Apollos comes and he dwells with them for a time. And we read that Aquila and Priscilla detected that Apollos had some issues that could be easily resolved. And therefore, they pulled him aside in order to make more clearly known the things of the kingdom, that he would be better equipped then to preach and to teach them. And so, to make more clearly known to him who Jesus was and the wonder of Jesus' coming. Acts 28 refers to Paul using that terminology, explaining again to the Jews the wonder of Jesus' coming. So that as we take it and now try to apply it to Amram and Jochebed, Amram and Jochebed set out Moses. That is, after they hid him for three months, they now set him out, not to be exposed to death, but to be revealed as the deliverer. They were walking by faith. And so they left his care They left his future to the Lord. And that's the significance of this, entrusting this matter now to the Lord for further clarification. Is this the one that God desires to make use of? Now, will God work? How will God work all things? Will God make use of this one? When all seems dismal, everything seems despairing, what do God's children do? They walk by faith. And so they set him out in order that they might see God's hand realized and how God would bring that to pass. Clinging to the promise, clinging to the word, and trusting themselves 
to Jehovah. And we see that providential wonder taking place here in this history. As they entrust their son to Jehovah, we see God's marvelous providence and the woman and his sister and the daughter of Pharaoh. Verses 2, 4, and 5. God makes use of women in this history. Jochebed, Miriam, Pharaoh's daughter. Now, even though God's name isn't mentioned here in Exodus 2, God is guiding, God's upholding all things that are taking place. And God, according to his providence, is directing the parents. God is directing Miriam to observe. And God leads Pharaoh's daughter now to the ark in order to cause all of this to come to pass. Then when she opens the ark, God moves her to compassion so that she has compassion instead of being cruel. Not only does God hold the heart of the kings in his hands, we see evidence here God is holding the king's daughter and her heart in his hands. He's leading and guiding her footsteps, and he's moving her to compassion. Now what a difficult thing to cast our children to the Lord. Some are required to do this at an early age. Others later. There are times when God takes our little ones from us. There are times in the past where missionaries had to send their children to boarding schools. Times when parents saw their sons go off to war, entrusting them now to the Lord. God cares for our children. We believe that. A God whose eyes never fail. A God who neither slumbers nor sleeps. A God who is watching constantly over our little ones. And that's the faith now by which Amram and Jochebed set their little baby in the water. Miriam is given courage. Miriam would have been between 6 perhaps and 12 years of age. She watches. And perhaps... She was alarmed when she sees the Egyptians coming close. And then she sees them walking out there. And she realizes what's going to happen. But in God's providence again, not God not only guiding the parents, God guiding Miriam. And isn't it astounding that this young gal knows how to communicate with the Egyptians? God giving her the ability to know the Egyptian language well enough that she's able to communicate with these Egyptians. And then God working the wonder by which Moses' mother is now employed to be his nurse. The woman who entrusted her child to the Lord receives him back now for a time. What a marvelous wonder of God's providence. God showing his goodness. God showing his mercy and providing in circumstances that would have been most heartbreaking. Now, a ray of hope and a ray of joy. Her son will not die, but her son will live. The providence of God providing this wonder and the authority of Pharaoh's household, his throne, commending it. Another marvelous wonder by which God is at work. All ways in which God's hand of providence, his love, his faithfulness, as he upholds all things and guides them to the purpose that he has ordained is evident here in this history. What a remarkable expression of God's fatherly hand looking over the situation and governing everything toward the goal 
of deliverance. And so Moses is taught by his parents for some four years or so. We're not certain how long. And one can only imagine the instruction now that his parents give him. And then the amazement by which God blessed that instruction as we read in Hebrews 11. How when Moses got old, what is it that he remembers? That four years of his life. That took precedent over everything else that he was taught. All the wealth, all the pleasure, all of the fame that he was exposed to. There was no Bible yet. If you think of the astounding character of this instruction, Moses is the one who's going to write the Bible that they're going to know of. Moses will later write Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So without the revelation of God in Scripture, Moses' mother now is teaching to Moses the things later that Moses is going to be inspired to write down. Teaching him about creation. Teaching him about the revelation of God. Teaching him about all of the wonders that took place. Talking about the fall of man into sin. Teaching him about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, about the flood. All of the things that were necessary taught in that small window of opportunity by his father and his mother. He learned the language. He learned the culture. He learned the convictions of the Hebrews. He learned the importance of sacrifice. He learned the laws that God had given up to that point. He learned to look to the Lamb of God, to know the promise of God, that God would raise up the seed of the woman, that God would bring about a deliverer, perhaps even telling him about how God had promised that Israel would be in Egypt for some 400 years, and then God would bring them out, and maybe even alerting him to the fact of the possibility that God could be using him as that deliverer. What an encouragement, beloved, to parents whose children perhaps get sick when they're young and pass to glory, who die in infancy, who are taken from them maybe in a crash, seemingly before their time. That Jehovah God is faithful to his promise. And the time that Amram and Jochebed had with their children was not taken for granted. And neither is the time that we have with our children. We don't know how long God will give our children to us or how long our children will have us with them. And so we don't take that for granted. We teach them. We instruct them. And we do so pointing them to the promises of God and the wonder of God's faithfulness, setting before them Christ and the wonder of salvation in Jesus Christ alone, and praying that God will impress upon their hearts the wonder of salvation and that God will work the fruit in their lives of thankful obedience unto him. And we pray, do we not, that that instruction will not be forgotten as they grow older, that they will remember their creator and that they will heed back to that instruction and that they'll not forsake it. Now God uses all of this wonder to bring Moses into the courts of Pharaoh. That's astounding as well. Why would Pharaoh have put up with this? Pharaoh made the decree that all the little boys in Egypt had to die. And now a Hebrew boy who supposedly was to be killed is brought to live in his house and to be trained as his grandson. That's astounding that Jehovah in his providence ordained that too. And that's our answer. God's providence. Moving the heart of this king. That this king did not demand of his daughter that that boy had to be put away, but that she allowed it. That he allowed it. God 
providing for his people. And again, God providing for the coming of the Messiah and for the deliverance of his church. What is another astounding thing to think about is God here is using Pharaoh precisely to bring about Pharaoh's destruction. God demonstrating how his hand throughout all of history is accomplishing his purpose. God is going to use Pharaoh to raise and train the very one who's going to later bring about the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt and the destruction of Pharaoh and his hosts in the Red Sea. Now, what would Moses have been taught? Young Egyptian children would be taught all the basic things that we teach our children, teach them to swim. They would teach them to ride a horse, to shoot a bow, an arrow. They would teach them how to hunt, all basic things that they would have to be instructed in. But the Egyptians were highly advanced in their civilization. And they were advanced in writing and math. They had trigonometry. They had geometry already. They had the ability to measure, to survey land. All of these would be taught. They studied history. They studied medicine. They studied music. They started the, studied the art of war. God brings his deliverer now into the court of Pharaoh to learn all of these important things that will later guide and lead him as the deliverer. Egypt had outstanding libraries with thousands and thousands of volumes, enabling Moses now to receive the best of instruction that he could have in that day. And Moses grew to be a linguist. He knew how to read. He knew how to write. He wrote the scriptures by the inspiration of God. God using this experience to prepare him to write these books of the Bible. He would have been trained in Egyptian language and Egyptian writing. He would have been taught the language of the Hebrews from his mother and now then bilingual in being able to learn about the Egyptian language. He'd have been taught the law. The Egyptians also were very much in favor of the law of Hammurabi of Babylon, which was the most famous law code of that day. They would have taught, they would have instructed Moses in all of those things. So that Stephen in Acts 7 verse 22 makes this statement, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. Jehovah God preparing his deliverer in the house of Pharaoh in order that he might be well taught in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, but more importantly, mighty in word and in deed. According to historians that are not of inspired character, Josephus is a famous Jewish historian. He states that Moses was a military commander and that previous to Moses having to flee out of Egypt, he had already captured a number of cities and had been quite prominent as an Egyptian military commander in Egypt. Now it's difficult for us then in that context to understand and to appreciate the struggles of Moses' heart during this time. But God moved him. And by faith he pressed on, knowing that while he was in the world, he was not of the world. Though he was in Egypt, he was not of Egypt. And as the psalmist later would write, he would be able to see also the marvelous hand of God as God was providentially 
guiding and directing all things. God guiding the king's decree, guiding a mother's love, guiding a baby's tears, guiding a sister's quick thinking, guiding the pity of Pharaoh's daughter, the willingness of a Pharaoh, guiding all of the matters of Egypt in order to save his church and to bring about the glory and honor of his name. And God stands by the wonder of providence, demonstrating that he controls all the kings of the world. We sang the versification of Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Pharaoh moved against God, God ordering all things. As in heaven he laughed, holding all things in derision and working them toward the goal that he had ordained. And we see in that God's faithfulness. Later, Mary and Joseph would take their young Jesus down to Egypt in order to be saved from wicked Herod. And again, we see the one to whom all this history points is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the one in whom God is well pleased. When we think of that designation, a goodly child, and God's designation of it, who do we think of? We think of Jesus. And we think of the repeated times when God made that designation concerning him. At the time of his baptism, I am well pleased. At the time of his transfiguration, the one in whom I am well pleased. God testifying to the purpose that he had for his own son. God giving us a Savior who came willingly, willingly to save and deliver his people. One who came, not as one who was attractive to the world, one who was desired or sought after by the world. The world despised him. There was no room for him in the inn. But Jehovah God would send him through whom he would accomplish the wonder of this deliverance. And at 30 years of age, he shows by wonders and miracles that he is the Son of God. He's set out by God in order to test the people of the world. What do you think of my son? What do you think of the Messiah? And the wicked men rise up against him. The waters overflow him at the cross. The billows of God's wrath come upon him, but he bears it all for us and for our salvation. In the face of tremendous persecution, Moses' parents kept their eyes of faith on God and on God's promises. And beloved, so it is for us. We don't face the persecution as they did yet. We don't face the intensity of it yet. But we know as the end gets closer, that persecution will come upon us. And that opposition will intensify. And as we face struggles and challenges, sometimes we struggle to see, how is God's hand in this for good? We struggle to see, how is it that God is working this together? And then we remember God's providence. God is faithful. He's upholding all things. He's directing everything. Even though we can't understand it, we believe it. And faith lays hold upon God and on his word and his promises. The devil wants us to despair. The devil wants us to turn to our own strength. But we look to God. 
and we lay hold on God and his word. And we trust God as the one who is able to bring about this marvelous deliverance. And so in this history, we need to see Jesus typified by Moses. Jesus is the true mediator. He's the true Savior in whom we delight. And God works the faith in our hearts by which we lay hold on him. We trust in him. There's no other individual in the Bible whose history is recorded from cradle to grave as Moses and Jesus. Those are the only two. We don't have such a detailed history and account of most biblical characters. But we're given knowledge here of his parents. We're given an insight into his life. We're given to see how he escaped death threats as a child, how he was trained as a prince, how he chose obedience over the treasures of Egypt, how he became a leader in Israel. And Moses is set forth as one of the most humble men that ever lived. And we see the parallels there to Jesus facing death threats early on, facing struggles throughout his life, proving his faithfulness again and again over against the opposition that he faced, setting his face as a flint to pursue the will of his heavenly Father and the love that he had for his people despite all of the attempts of the devil to distract him. God gave us a Savior and we lay hold on him with thanksgiving. A Savior who did not turn away from that purpose that God had ordained for him. But God also raises up specific parents for those leaders. And we see that wonder throughout history too. And God continues to raise up particular parents who are raising up a generation who's going to be living during the time of increased persecution and opposition. God raising up parents to teach and to train their children and using parents to preserve godliness and to preserve faith in the midst of this world so that when Jesus comes again, there yet will be faith here. If you think, 400 years after 70 people had entered into Egypt, God was still keeping faith alive. Today, some 2,000 years after Jesus died, God continues to keep faith alive in the midst of this world. And God promises that he will preserve to himself a people until Jesus comes back again. And so we press on by faith, laying hold on God's promise and believing his faithfulness. Now when we think about the faith of Moses' parents, we think, how, how could that have been possible before Pentecost? We're on the other side of the cross. We enjoy the wonder of the Spirit poured out at Pentecost. We know the Holy Spirit, and we're given to be partakers of the wonders of salvation. God brings us to know the depths of his love and the wonders that are ours. But we see here how God, in his faithfulness, was preserving his church already during this time, working faith in their hearts, strengthening them to do what, from a human perspective, would have been impossible, enabling them to press on by that faith. And beloved, we, on the other side now of the cross, knowing the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ, press on. And we do so by faith, believing that if the day comes and we're commanded similarly not to teach, not to rear our children, perhaps even to kill them, we obey God rather than men. 
And we find our inspiration in the faith by which God preserved and kept the Old Testament saints. God will preserve and keep us. And we press on looking for another deliverance. We look forward to the wonder of God by which this earthly body will be broken down and God will bring us into everlasting life with himself in the new heaven and the new earth. The wonder of Jesus Christ and his deliverance fully realized for all the church in order that she might dwell with God in the fullness of that love and life to all eternity. That wonder is ours. And we look to him to strengthen us and to guide us by his providence, longing for that day when we too will be delivered from the Egypt of this life and brought into the fullness of the bliss that awaits. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we stand in awe of thy hand of providence, of thy love and thy care for thy church, the marvelous wonder and the strength that thou dost work in the hearts of thy people. And Lord, we go forward, laying hold by faith on thy word and on thy promises and looking to Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, to strengthen us in the midst of the race in which thou hast set us and to give unto us daily the strength that we need. Forgive us and bless us, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.